morning family. Monday evening, I was trying to put the finishing touches on this morning's sermon, and I was really struggling to figure out how to begin, and my daughters came into the house weeping. One of their two beloved kittens was stuck in a tree. Now, I cannot stress to you enough how much I did not want to get involved. (laughs) I was working on the sermon. I didn't want to get involved. Their cats decided to go out and just take a look. And 25 feet up, approximately, is this little kitten. With my tallest ladder, I could get to kind of a little bend in the tree but no higher. That would only get me about halfway. Uh, There was no other branches that I could climb on to get the rest of the way. I would have to unfold my ladder, get up there in that little section, the Y part of the tree, and then somehow find a way to reach up to one of those cats. And then maybe he would run away. I just didn't want to get involved. And so I told the girls, we'll just have to pray that God will keep the cat safe. It's bedtime. Go brush your teeth. Put on your pajamas. It's time for bed. Eventually, I reconsidered, and I did climb that tree. I just stand on my tiptoes in that part of the tree and held a snow shovel like this until finally we were able to get the cat down. But I wonder if some of us think of God a little bit like the way that I acted towards my daughters that night. He sees our need. He sees it. He sees that we're in a miserable condition. He sees that we cannot save ourselves, and yet he doesn't want to get involved. Too busy. Maybe he just doesn't want to get his hands dirty. Maybe he just doesn't want to be the, the go-between between where we are and where we need to be. Have you ever felt like that or thought that about the God of the universe? You need to better understand what the Bible teaches about priests. That might seem a strange thing, You want to know how God gets involved? Think about priests. That seems really strange, but the office of priesthood throughout the scriptures is one of the clearest ways where God shows us how he gets involved. If you're not already there in your Bibles, I'm going to invite you again to turn to Hebrews chapter 4, beginning verse 14. It's going to help you if you have a Bible open on your lap in front of you as we walk through the passage together. Uh, If you're not familiar with the book of Hebrews, this was written by an unknown author in the early 60s AD. So about 30 years after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, uh, someone wrote this letter to Christians to show them how Jesus is the true and better reality to which all the shadows in the Old Testament were pointing. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's a new and better temple. He gives a new and and better tabernacle. On and on and on, the authors go to show us that Jesus is better. And one of the things that the author repeats over and over throughout this little letter 
is that Jesus is the new and better priest. So the big idea I want to show you this morning from God's word is that Jesus is the ultimate priest who stands between God and man by sacrificing on our behalf. If you want to see how God gets involved, look to Jesus as your priest. I want to ask and answer with God's help three simple questions this morning. What is a priest? How is Jesus the ultimate priest? And why does any of this matter? Let's just dive right in. What is a priest? Our text gives a really clear summary of the priesthood in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. Listen to the text. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. I want you to notice three really simple things about what a priest is from this simple verse. First, priests are appointed. You see that? Every high priest is chosen from men, among men is appointed. But, but who does the appointing? Did priests run for office? And get yard signs together and start a political campaign? Were, were they appointed by kings, like a Supreme Court justice is appointed by a president? The text actually tells us in verse 4, no one takes this honor, the honor of being a priest, for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Aaron was the very first high priest in the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law. He was Moses' brother, and he was appointed by God. And every priest after Aaron comes from Aaron's tribe, the tribe of Levi. They're all appointed by God. A second thing to notice about what a priest is, verse 1 says that their job is to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Think of a priest like a middleman. He's a mediator. He stands between God and man. God is holy. We are not. What bridges the gap between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man? The answer in the Old Testament is priests. They're the ones that represented God's people before God and represented God to his people. They, they were the middlemen. They were the mediators. They stood between God and his people. How do they do it? Again, verse 1 answers that they did it by offering gifts and sacrifices for sins. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that the Old Testament is filled with these sacrifices. Usually these are, these are bloody sacrifices involving an animal dying as a substitute. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that indeed under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The office of priesthood really, in a way, goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, God himself comes to them as a great high priest, and he, he kills an animal, takes its skins, and covers over Adam and Eve. So, too, the priest would offer these sacrifices to, to cover over the sins of God's people. So what is a priest? They were men appointed by God to stand between God and man, 
by sacrificing for the people. That's a really simple definition. Right there in Hebrews 5, verse 1. Question number two, then, how is Jesus the ultimate priest? How is Jesus the ultimate priest? Let me show you five reasons why Jesus is the ultimate priest. Number one, he is from a better priesthood. Jesus is from a better priesthood. Now, I already mentioned this, but in the law of Moses, if you wanted to be a priest, you, you, you couldn't volunteer, you didn't get voted in, you were appointed by God by being born in the tribe of Levi. Abraham, or Jacob, who was later called Israel, he had 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. If you wanted to be a priest, you had to be born from the tribe of Levi. But if you know the story of Jesus, Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi. Which tribe was Jesus from? The tribe of Judah. He's the Lion of Judah. So how is it that Jesus is a priest? How can he be a priest if he's not even from the right tribe? To answer that question, we have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 14. You don't have to turn there, but you might maybe mark that passage. You can read it later. Genesis chapter 14, this is before the priesthood. This is before the law of Moses. Abraham has been called by God to go to a place that God would show him. And along the way in his wanderings, Abraham meets this strange guy. You've heard his name twice already this morning. This guy named Melchizedek. Melchizedek is one of the most interesting characters in the entire Old Testament for a couple of reasons. Melchizedek, if you read Genesis 14, was a king and a priest. Now, that probably doesn't seem like a big deal to most of us here this morning, but if if you've read the Old Testament, you know that kings and priests don't really share the same office. You can be a king... Or you can be a priest, but you can't really be both. Instead of the story of King Saul, who tried to offer a sacrifice in the place of the priest, and he was eventually cut off from being king. Consider the story of King Uzziah, who tried to offer incense at the altar like a priest, and as he raises his hand to offer the incense, he is struck down with leprosy. And he dies in shame and isolation. You can be a king or a priest, but you can't be both, unless, it seems, you're this guy, Melchizedek. Melchizedek is also interesting because he's a priest, but he's not from the tribe of Levi. Levi's Levi's grandpa hasn't even been born yet. Abram has not had Isaac. So there is no tribe of Levi. There is no Levitical priesthood. And yet here, Melchizedek shows up on the scene, Genesis 14, and he's a king, he's a priest, and he seems to be greater than Abraham. Now, if you're a Jewish person, there's really nobody greater than Abraham. And yet, if you look at Genesis 14 carefully, there are two things that suggest that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Melchizedek blesses Abram, not the other way around. And Abram gives tithes, money, to Melchizedek. The implication teased out by the author of Hebrews is that because Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, then Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than the priesthood that came from Abraham. And notice, long after, 
long after this story, with Abraham and Melchizedek. About a thousand years later, God speaks to a young boy named Samuel. He's working for Eli the high priest, and God makes a promise to this little boy Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35, he says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. What's God saying? I'm going to raise up a better priest. He's a forever priest. In the psalm that Channing read to begin our service, Psalm 110, David prophesies that that forever priest is not going to come from the tribe of Levi, but guess from who? The tribe of Melchizedek, a priest from the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is a better priest because as Hebrews 5, 6 says, he is the forever priest after the order of Melchizedek. It's one reason why he's a better priest. Here's a second reason. Jesus sacrifices himself. Think about what the priest did in the Old Testament. Day after day, year after year, your priest, your job is to take a cute, cuddly little lamb or bull or a goat and slaughter it, sprinkle the blood on the altar so that the sins of God's people can be covered over, over and over again. They're sacrificing animals. What does Jesus do? Jesus does not come and sacrifice an animal. What does he sacrifice? He sacrifices himself. So, dear friend, this is what Jesus is doing on the cross. Jesus is not dying as a hapless victim. He's not out of control. He's in control. He says, no one takes the the life of the Son of Man. I lay it down. He is dying as a willful sacrifice. He's better than any other priest because he sacrifices himself. He's not only the great high priest who makes the sacrifice, he is the Lamb of God who is the sacrifice. And because of who Jesus is, his self-sacrifice is actually able to pay our our sin debt. He is the eternal Son of God, and he is without sin. That's the point that the author of Hebrews makes in chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. He says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus sacrifices himself and his sacrifice can pay your penalty because he is God and he is sinless. Now, that's glorious good news. And yet, have you ever noticed the human heart can take what's good news and twist it and turn it into bad news? Right? We can do that with this. You, in your own heart, can sometimes hear Jesus is the Son of God. He's glorious. He's massive. He's bright. He's beautiful. He's sinless. You hear all that, and you say, he's too great for me. I can't approach him. He's he's too beyond me. I'm too dirty. I can't approach him. 
That's the exact opposite of what the author of Hebrews is trying to get us to do. The entire Roman Catholic Church came up with different lesser mediators that we could go to. Don't go to Jesus, go to the Virgin Mary or, or go to the saints or go to an earthly human priest because Jesus is too much, he's too great. We Protestants can do the same thing whenever we distance ourselves from Jesus because of our shame. So how do we deal with that? We remind ourselves that Jesus is a better priest because Number three, he is perfectly sympathetic. Jesus is the perfectly sympathetic priest. My dad grew up a Roman Catholic, and in his hometown in Willimantic, Connecticut, the priest there, the parish, was the town drunk. He wasn't very sympathetic to the needs of the people in his town. Perhaps you've looked at earthly priests earthly mediators, and you said, they can't relate to me. In our sin, we are tempted to think that Jesus can't relate to us either. And yet, verse 15 is clear that he is sympathetic. Let let me state verse 15 positively. Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because in every respect, he has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is not like the world-class surgeon who knows how to operate on your body but has zero bedside manner. Jesus is not like the renowned scholar who cannot communicate to lay people. Jesus is both, get this, both totally sinless and perfectly sympathetic. He's both. Some of you hear that and you're skeptical. And you think, Jesus can't be perfectly sympathetic. He doesn't know what it's like to be tempted like I'm tempted. He's sinless. He's a Boy Scout. He doesn't know what it's like. How can Jesus truly understand me if he doesn't know what it's like to sin? C.S. Lewis has a beautiful response to this. In his book, Mere Christianity, he says this, A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. Dear brother, sister, friend, Jesus knows temptation 10 trillion times better than you do. How often do you give in? How often do you fight for a minute or two or not at all? And Jesus spent his entire life fighting sin and never once giving in. And some of you might respond yet again and say, okay, Jesus might know temptation better than me, but he doesn't know the weight of sin and shame like I do. 
Jesus never sinned. And so he doesn't know what it feels like to fall miserably short and be absolutely collapsing under the weight of shame and sin and to feel that on his shoulders. Dear friend, he knows it better than you do. For on the cross, what did Jesus do but bear your sin and shame? Do you see he is perfectly sympathetic? So you can go to him. The fourth reason why Jesus is a better priest is because he offers the final sacrifice. Final sacrifice. From the moment... God slaughtered those animals and covered Adam and Eve in animal skins to the final verse of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is covered in blood. It's a violent book. Our Lord willing, we'll be studying the book of Judges next year, and you'll just see just a little bit of how violent it is. This is a blood, bloody, bloody, violent book. And if you know the priesthood, you were reminded day after day about the shedding of blood. For a thousand years, God's people looked to priests to offer sacrifices, but they were never ending because the moment you left the sacrifice, you sin again, and guess what you need? Another sacrifice. Another one. But Jesus is a single, final, forever sacrifice. Listen to the author of Hebrews in chapter 7. It says, Jesus has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Listen, because Jesus is the final sacrifice, because he's our great high priest, we're not looking for the temple to be rebuilt or for sacrifices to be reinstituted. We don't have penance to do or purgatory to pay. We have a sacrifice that's been paid. As we said a few weeks ago, we looked at Jesus on the cross in Matthew's gospel. Every ounce of wrath that God's people deserve was fully, finally, and forever paid by Jesus on the cross. Finally, Jesus is a better priest because Jesus is alive. Now, if you read the Old Testament and the New Testament too, you'll find all sorts of priests. Some of them famous some of them infamous. Priests like Aaron, Eliezer, Phineas, Eli, Zadok, Caiaphas. Do you know what all those priests have in common? They're all dead. They're all dead. And so too with every other priest except one. Listen to Hebrews chapter 7 again. Verses 23 to 25, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives. You see that? He lives to do what? To make intercession for them. Jesus performs his priestly duties 
in two states. In his humiliation, his life on earth, Jesus was our great high priest when he became the ultimate sacrifice and died on our behalf. In his exaltation in heaven, how is Jesus functioning as our priest? He's praying for you. That's what making intercession means. Jesus is praying for his people now. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland asked this question, who is Jesus in those moments of spiritual blankness? Not who is he once you conquer that sin, but who is it in the midst of it? His heart is such that he stands and speaks in our defense when we sin, not when we get over it. Christian, if you can really grasp that, it can change your life. Jesus ever lives to make intercession and pray for his people. And when you're wandering, Christian, Jesus does not say, you know what, I'm going to pause for a little bit about praying for so-and-so, because right now she's just really made a mess of things. Let's wait until she fixes things, and then I'll pray for her. No, no, no. Jesus, with his nail-scarred hands, stands before the Father, even as you wander, and he pleads for you. Father, don't let this one go. Father, don't stop working on her. Father, see my hands. He belongs to me. She belongs to me. He's pleading for you. That is glorious good news. Jesus is the ultimate high priest. Final question we want to ask this morning is why does this matter? What impact should this have on my day-to-day life knowing and understanding that Jesus is the great high priest. Let me suggest two responses. Number one, both of these are clear in our text. Number one, we must persevere together. Look at verse 14 of chapter 4. Since, because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Because you have a high priest and his name is Jesus, hold fast your confession. The word confession there is not talking about an apology. It's talking about what what you believe. Think like a confession of faith. So, So hold fast to the truth that you believe. Persevere because Jesus is a great high priest. I want you to notice verse 14 is pretty clear that we're supposed to do this together. Let us hold fast our, our confession. Dear professing Christian, you cannot cling to Jesus without clinging to his people. I want you to hear me. You cannot cling to Jesus without clinging to his people. 
You say, why not? He, he says, I am the head and the church is my body. You can't cling to a decapitated head. You cling to the whole Christ. That's him and his people. We're called to persevere together. We need each other. So how, how do we do this? How do we do it? If you're a Christian, the Bible tells us that you're supposed to function as a little priest. Some of you might be resistant to that idea. You, you hear, oh, I'm a priest, or he's a priest, or she's a priest, and, and you think about some confessional somewhere, and you're just resistant to that entire idea. But you have to listen to what the New Testament says. And the New Testament is clear. This is in 1 Peter. It's a couple of times in Revelation. It says that we are a priesthood. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. You yourselves, talking to Christians, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be what? A holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. We're not offering animal sacrifices, but spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So how do we persevere together? By functioning as little priests, by following Jesus' example. So how do I function as a little priest? Again, do I, do I need to set up a confessional booth? Do I need to be like Lucy and Linus, you know, and set up a little, little psychi- psychiatric help, five cents? With inflation, we'll say it's $50. What do I need to do? Well, here's a couple of things. We function as little priests when we pray for each other, like Jesus prays for us. If Jesus ever lives to pray for you, Christian, Shouldn't a big part of your life be praying for each other? One really simple way you can do this, if you're a member here at PBC, is get one of our directories and and make it a commitment. Maybe in the year ahead, I'm going to pray through this directory during my quiet time. Maybe maybe I'll just pray for one name a day. Uh, Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll try to pray for a page a day or a page a week or a page a month. But to to make it a commitment to pray for God's people because Jesus is praying for you. If we're going to pray well for one another, we need to know each other, don't we? So it's going beyond just simple prayer, God bless so-and-so, amen. What are their needs? To do this, we have to actually get to know each other and each other's needs. For years, PBC has prioritized the value of the church being a family. Long before I was your pastor, the slogan at Pocosin Baptist Church was feels like family. And I've watched you over the years as we've done things like implement small groups. I've seen some of you and heard several of you say, I've known you for decades, but now I know you. Why? Because I made a commitment to spend time with you once a week for two months. A little thing. I mean, like a fellowship group, that little thing can yield massive dividends to helping you know and love and be a faithful little priest to the men and women in your church family. Another really simple thing you can do is, is learn to talk a little bit less about you and ask a little bit more questions about them. How are you doing? How can I pray for you? Another thing that priests do is they they sacrifice 
Uh, we are called not to sacrifice in a temple for each other, but we do sacrifice for each other, don't we? Why? Because Jesus has sacrificed for us. So what sacrifices do we make for one another? We, we love one another. We weep with those who weep. When one of us dies, we go to a funeral and, and support each other. When it's a loved one, someone I didn't even know, we, we prioritize that as a church so that we can love that person and weep with them as they weep. What may be even harder is to rejoice with those who rejoice. To hear that my sister is expecting a baby when I've been expecting a baby, praying for one for years, and God hasn't given me one, and still rejoicing for her anyways. To rejoice when he gets that promotion and you still struggle in that job. When she finds a husband and you don't. To rejoice with those who rejoice sometimes takes great sacrifice to actually be thrilled for you when maybe I wanted that thing and God chose not to give it to me. Sacrifice when we bear one another's burdens. Listen, the deeper you get involved in the life of your church, the more frustrated you're going to be. Sometimes. Because you're going to find that there are burdens that need to be bear, born, and perhaps God is calling you to bear that burden. If, if you're here, blissfully unfrustrated by your church family, perhaps you might need to lean in a little bit more. One simple way for you to lean in might be just to come to our open house tonight from four to seven and hang out with tons of people in limited space and love each other anyways. <laughs> Commercial over. Maybe you're thinking, well, all this stuff is just way too hard. I can't be that kind of priest and love these people that way. A dear friend, one of our missionaries, Carlos Yambes, who regularly has said to me, chase God on your knees before you chase men on your feet. If you're going to be a faithful little priest to the people in your church family, you're going to need to pray. That's the second application. We can pray confidently. Because Jesus is the ultimate priest, we can pray confidently. Not long after Jonah was born, I began working two jobs just to barely pay the bills in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, I worked at an ophthalmologist's office during the day, full time, and then I took a little bit of break, spent some time with Holly and Jonah, and worked half time at, at nights at UPS. About seven months in, getting very little sleep, very little time with my family, God had given me favor in both jobs. And I had an opportunity to pursue a full-time career at UPS. But I really didn't want to do that if it meant working full-time at night. And so I thought, maybe, just maybe, the eye doctor will give me a raise and I can just work there. So I had to meet with him and request a pretty big raise. I remember the day came and I was going to walk up the stairs to his office and make my big request. Now, this didn't happen, but... Imagine, as I'm walking up those stairs, I hear two voices. The eye doctor's up there, my boss, and I also hear his wife, who also worked there sometimes. 
And, and let's just say I'm listening as I'm walking up and I hear her say, Hobson is the best employee ever. He is so good. The worst thing you could ever do is let him go. Whatever he needs, give it to him. Now, let's just say that happened. It didn't. Let's just say that happened. <laughs> and I finish, I, you know, I listen for a minute. She comes down. I woke up to talk to the boss. What's that going to do for my confidence? To hear her interceding for me is going to fill me with absolute confidence to ask big. Great Scottish, Scottish pastor named Robert Murray McShane said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Listen to Hebrews 4.16. Because Jesus is our high priest, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. One of the biggest differences between Jesus' prayer for us and my imagined scenario is at the eye doctor, his wife was pointing to me. But Jesus is not pointing to our greatness, but his. Not to our skills, but to his scars. This is the price that I paid for her, Father. This is the price that I paid for him. And the author of Hebrews says, because Jesus is doing that for you right now, Christian, you can boldly go before the throne and pray. I wish I could spend the whole rest of the morning telling you all the ways it could change our prayer life if we prayed with that kind of boldness. Let me just say one thing to the unbeliever and one thing to the Christian. If you're in this room and you're not a believer, most of these promises are not yet true for you, but they can be. You can boldly come to Jesus and beg him to save you, and he will not cast you out. John 6, 37, Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Dear unbelieving friend, you can go boldly and say to Jesus, not because I am great, but because you are great. Not because I am good, but because you are good. I trust you and your death to save me, and he will not cast you out. And to the Christian, you can pray big things from God. You can ask him for big things. And then you can trust that whether he says yes or no, he is gloriously good. Because the father that you're praying to is hearing your prayers and also the prayers of his beloved son for you. All that's true because Jesus is our ultimate high priest. Now, I told you that I rescued our kitty on Monday night but I didn't tell you what changed my heart and led me to get involved. After I told the girls to get ready for bed, something happened that caused my grinchy heart to grow three sizes that night. I heard the tears of my beloved daughters. Something strange happened. 
My eyes began to water a little bit. I don't know why. My legs began to shake a little bit. My voice began to quiver. And I got out of my chair, and I walked to the garage, and I grabbed my ladder, and I rescued that kitty. Now, you and I are a lot like that kitty stuck in a tree. We don't have a lot to offer, and we really deserve to face whatever consequences come our way. But when the father looks upon his beloved son, our great high priest, and he sees his suffering, he loves us. One of my daughters asked me after I rescued the, the, the little kitty, Daddy, do you love midnight? That's our kitty. I thought about it for a second. I had to think about it for a second. And I said, yes. But mostly because you love midnight. And because I love you, I love him. The father, dear Christian, he loves you. Not because you're lovable. You might want him to love you because you're lovable. But trust me, you don't. Because that would mean the moment you become unlovable, his love wanes and weakens. But the father says, I love you because I love my beloved son. And if you're in him, then I'm for you. And the love of the father for you is so much even greater than a dad loving his daughters enough to rescue a cat in a tree. Because the son does not love us first or more than the father. Christian, there was never a time when the father didn't love you. It was the father's love that caused him to send the son. Not because you are good, but because he is. We can see, smell, and taste that love whenever we take the Lord's Supper together. The bread reminds us of Jesus' body bruised for our sin. We were so evil that Jesus had to die for us. The cup reminds us of Jesus' blood freely shed so we could be forgiven. Jesus is so good that he was glad to die for us. If you have repented of your sins, if you've not repented of your sins, and follow Jesus in baptism as a believer, we would ask you not to take communion with us in just a moment. It's not because we think we're better than you. Not at all. It's because we want you to receive Jesus himself and not just the symbol that reminds us of Jesus. It's because receiving Jesus is more than something that you do in your heart. It's something that connects you to a family. And the first step towards that after you give your life to Jesus is baptism. So we want you to follow Jesus in that first step before you take later steps. If you find yourself this morning, someone who's not a Christian or not yet followed Jesus in believer's baptism, and you want to talk with one of our pastors about next steps, one of us will be waiting at the white flag in just a moment. We'd love to talk to you when folks stand to sing. If you're not ready to talk to someone, you're welcome to stay in your seat when folks come to the front to take communion. Uh, you're also welcome, if you'd prefer uh, to leave the service, 
we don't want you to leave, but you're welcome to do that if you'd like. And, and folks won't be looking at you or judging you because there's going to be a lot of moving around. Parents are going to be getting up, getting their little ones out of the nursery. There's going to be all sorts of activity in just a moment when we stand up to take communion. So if you'd prefer to leave, we're so grateful that you're here, and we hope that you'll come back and hear this good news again. If you're a believer, you follow Jesus in baptism, I want to encourage you to begin preparing your heart now to take communion with us. I want you to think that Jesus has been praying for you to prepare your heart for this moment before you even knew it was happening. Would you think about Jesus as your great high priest and rejoice in him, that he is alive, that he is perfectly sympathetic, that he is the perfect and final sacrifice. Would you join me as we pray?